Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, you know how we all have people in our lives that are like, they're just these ultra positive influences. Mm, yeah. Like when you, when you need a pick me up, you know, you just need to spend five minutes with that person oh, yeah. and you're going to feel better. Mm-hmm. I do. Well, we are blessed today on the podcast to have a guest that falls into that category. In fact, I think she might be the most positive person I know. Now, just based on that lead in, can you guess who this is? So someone you just know, or both of us know? I know her better than you. Okay. Oh, I bet I know. What do you think? I bet it's Amber. It is. It's Amber Graziano. Amber, welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. What a great intro. (laughs) You know what? And that wasn't just blowing sunshine. You really are upbeat and positive, even when things are tough and you might be struggling. Um, you've always got a positive spin on it and just a belief that you can pull yourself out of something with, with attitude and effort. And I just love that about you. How, now tell me how, um, how long are you sober? That's not said very well. Days <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> sobriety do you have? Oh, um, about eight and a half months now. Eight and a half months. That is fantastic. One of the things that I love about you, besides just your your positivity, is really early on in your sobriety. I mean, I still consider anything under a year, even a year and beyond, to be early sobriety. And so I still consider you to be in early sobriety. You have already dedicated yourself to making a difference for others. And I think it's so important because the alcoholism is such a selfish disease and even early sobriety is really selfish because you've got to work so hard on yourself to fix yourself. And, and it's it's all of this effort toward your own stuff, ignoring all those around you as much as you can. And you already at eight and a half months are turning, um, making this transition that is necessary for all of us to start doing something in a broader sense, to, to help others, to be a part of the recovery community, to make a difference, to, to change the stigma, to crush the stigma. Um, So I'm super proud of you for that. Tell us, you have a passion and you're going to incorporate that into your work going forward. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, they say if you want to keep it, you have to give it away. They say that in recovery meetings all the time. So um, I've been thinking a lot about service lately. And so that's why I've been wanting to help people lately. Um, So yeah, I mean, the first few months of recovery were so hard, but now that I'm finally through that and it's not so hard anymore, I wanna help other people to get sober and stay sober because there were people that helped me along the way and I can't thank them enough. And I just feel like I could help so many people, even if I helped one person, that would make me happy. You know, you've told me before that when the witching hour would come, when the the day would be winding down and you'd be really jonesing for that glass of wine, when that was the case for me, when it was when it was drinking hour for me when I was in early sobriety, I would go and read a book. But tell our listeners what you do or what you did. Uh, I think you still do 
um, when cocktail hour rolls around and you want to make sure that you don't crack open a bottle of wine? Well, for me, it's always been running and yoga, exercise really. So I've been running for 25 years almost. And for most of my life, I was running hungover and tired and exhausted, but it was just kind of what I did. Now that I'm sober, um, or when I was trying to get sober, I, I thought, you know, gosh, I really want to drink. No, I'm not going to do it. So I would just put the kids in the double stroller and we would go out for a two or three mile run and we'd stop at the park and it would get me through that witching hour that you mentioned, you know, get me out of the house, get my mind off drinking, give me something to do. And every single time when I got back from my run, the cravings had subsided. Um, exercise is just the best thing to do when you're experiencing cravings. That's great. I love your passion around it. I know exactly what that feels like when you do something. And maybe at the beginning, you're doing it because you're forcing yourself or you're doing it because it's your new routine that's better than the drinking routine. But you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And then when you're done, as I said, for me, a lot of times it was it was a lot of reading of memoirs of the alcoholics that had come before me. That sensation of, oh, I don't want to drink anymore. This is fantastic. I can't believe that I'm not just dying for a drink like I was an hour ago or, or an hour and a half ago. So yeah. And yeah. And when you do something active and physical like that, then you feel so good that you don't want to ruin it by drinking. You're now on a healthy trajectory. Now you're going to eat healthy and you're going to probably go running tomorrow and eat healthy because now you're on a good pattern of health and fitness rather than drinking all the time. Absolutely. Speaking of fitness and exercise, in just a minute, I want to get into your early story where your drinking started because athletics has been a part of your life forever. But before we go there, I want to talk just a little bit about one of the challenges that you faced in early sobriety. And it's a challenge that comes from, from inside the family. Your parents are both drinkers, pretty consistent drinkers. And at first, they didn't necessarily believe you when you started talking about having the disease of alcoholism and really needing to quit. They thought, you know, it was, a, it was sobriety was kind of a phase for you. Am I describing that right? Can you talk a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. You know, they still don't think that I have a drinking problem or a disease they're in complete denial and just tight-lipped about it. We, all, we never talk about it. Um, so my parents are not huge drinkers, but they're daily drinkers. So they'll have, my mom will have two glasses of wine, but what that looks like is two tall tumblers of wine. So it's probably a bottle or more. And my dad will have a, a whiskey or two. So it's never more than two. They always stop drinking at dinner or after dinner. They don't continue on and on like I would or like my brother does. So my mom always says, you know, why don't you just stop after two? Just stop after two. <laughs> and that just makes me laugh because I can't. I'm just getting started. If I have two, I'm going to have six or 10. There is no such thing as having one or two can't do it. And, 
And that's the mantra of the people who love us and they're trying, but they just don't understand. Why don't you just yeah. do more control? Why don't you just have two? Why don't you only drink on the weekends? Why don't you just yeah. do it? I would say yes. that. Yeah. I, I didn't question. I would say, well, if you just moderated or just stopped after two or you had one or not every night have cocktail, you know, I didn't understand for a long time. It's so addictive that you just can't stop. I just can't stop once I start. So we all need support networks. So you decide that you've realized you have a drinking problem. You need to stop. It's over. The party is over. And for many of us, our support network is our family. And you're very close with your family. I know you are. So you, you come to them and say, listen, here's the deal. And I'm going to quit drinking. And, you know, not only... I want to say this right, because I don't think your parents were at any time doing it in any way maliciously, but just out of, out of kind of an ignorance about the disease, they would give you the old, oh, come on, you'll be fine. And, and still well into your sobriety, we're trying to, we're drinking in front of you and, and encouraging. Didn't, didn't your mom once say that you were her drinking buddy and, and she missed yes. you? Yes, she said that all the time. So around here, there are just hundreds of wineries. And that's our drink. We drink wine. Well, we used to drink wine together um, daily. And, you know, it was something fun to do together. And, um, you know, during the coronavirus times, I don't see a lot of people. So the only people that I really do see are my parents and my kids and my ex-husband. So anyway, with my mom, she'll say, I really wish we could go to the winery. Um, would you still go to the winery with me and just not drink? I'm like, no. <laughs> well, maybe you could just drink once a month. No, not going to happen. So she, <clears throat> after all of these months, she's still trying to entice me to visit the wineries with her. Last weekend, I was over there for dinner and my dad said, hey, try my whiskey. Just have a little sip. And I said, dad, I'm not going to have a sip of your whiskey. Why would you offer that to me? And he's like, oh, and then he, before he could even say anything, my mom said, well, what does it matter, Amber? Whiskey's not your drink. Wine is your drink. So can't you just have a little sip? And I just, I was just baffled. First of all, why would I want to have one sip of your whiskey? Why are you offering it to me knowing that I've worked so hard on my sobriety? It's almost like... They definitely don't take me seriously, but are they joking about it? I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, I couldn't tell you. That's about but, as funny as, I know, you're, I know you've quitted snorting cocaine lines, but just smoke a little crack because that's, that's a different form. So, yeah. you know, I don't think the smoke and crack will get you. Don't worry about it, Amber. I know. So, um, so you know, you said we all need people around us to help us with early sobriety. I don't have anyone around me, nobody, because everyone that I know thinks I don't have a problem drinking. The only person who thinks I have a problem drinking is me. Yeah. My friends, when I told my friends, they said, really? Huh? I just thought we were just having fun. And then my parents, they said, my mom said, no, you're not an alcoholic. That's not what alcoholism looks, alcoholism looks like. It looks like this, you know, the homeless in the gutter, whatnot. Um, and my dad, 
he has never said one single word about it. He just can't find the words. Um, my ex-husband's, he, he said, you know, we were married for all this time. I never, I never saw you belligerent or super wasted. He was like totally shocked when I quit drinking and not only shocked, but he did not want me to quit drinking. Neither did my mom or my dad because everybody just wants their drinking buddy back. So there it is. I mean, you just defined why the stigma is such a problem. Uh, you know, sometimes people question us, why do you care about the stigma? Just, just help people quit drinking. Well, it's so much harder to help people quit drinking when people picture the alcoholic as the, the bum sleeping in the gutter who pees on himself. Mm -hmm. They don't want alcoholism to be living among us like it is. And so if they can't visualize that, then they can't imagine that you could actually be there. I, for one, I have to tell you, I'm not only proud of you, I'm super jealous of you because you're quite a bit younger than Sherry and I. And you're attacking this, you know, when you've still got three quarters of your life ahead of you. Um, <laughs> I guess it depends. You on. want everybody to live to like 150. That would, that yeah. would be I'm almost 40. Okay. But that's a, you know, that's a, that's a nice chunk of your life left and your kid's life. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah, so what this is all about is about my babies. I'm telling you, every step I take is for them. So they see a different way. They don't see alcohol as normalized in a part of daily life, right? That's right. I could never forgive myself if I was, if I had never quit drinking and they saw me with a glass of wine in my hand everywhere we went. And then if they, if and when they developed their own drinking problems, then it would be too late. And I would just never forgive myself. I, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, before we get off this topic of your, your local support network or, or lack thereof, um, I mentioned how positive you are. And I mean it, you're truly probably the most positive person I know. But I want to crack into that a little bit. I want you to be honest with us. How does it feel to to have your parents, you know, working to make sobriety harder for you than it necessarily has to be? Honestly, it's heartbreaking. And I hate it because um, my kids are three and five and I'm a single mom. So they're with me 90% of the time. Well, my parents like to help me out a lot, which I really, really appreciate because I work. And so they'll take the kids here and there, pick them up, whatnot. But, um, you know, my mom will come over three or four times a week after work and she'll bring her wine with her in her tumbler. She always has Chardonnay in her tumbler and she brings it right into my house and she sets it there right in front of me. And I'm just, especially in the early days, I'm just thinking, oh, that stings. Just to have to even look at that wine. I don't even want to look at it, but, and I, back then I was such a people pleaser that she would say, Amber, does the wine bother you? Should I not drink around you? And I was, I was being tough. And I said, no, it doesn't bother me. I'm such a liar. Of course it bothered me. And now it's like too late to say, hey, that bothers me. I don't like it when you bring your wine over here. 
I don't like it when we have family dinner and you and dad have a drink in front of me. I think it's disrespectful, but I don't want to be disrespectful to them and say, you can't drink in front of me because who am I to tell them what to do? And when coronavirus ends and I go back out into the real world, people are going to be drinking around me all the time. So I do feel like it's something that I have to get used to, but I should have been better about setting a, a stricter boundary with my parents, especially in early sobriety. Anybody who's trying to get sober does not need to be around alcohol. Um, so that's both of our faults. I should have told them no, but I didn't. Do you think that as you're gaining more confidence in your sobriety and you're getting stronger every day, you could reframe it to say that it's not so much about you and your, you know, seeing the, the tumbler of wine, but you can say, I don't want that for your grandkids and I don't want it normalized. And that's the household I have. And that's where I'd like it to be. So then you're not always the bad guy because I understand being the people pleaser, but now you can like put it on saying, I don't want your grandsons to see this. You know what? That's such a great idea. I never thought of it that way. And it's true. I don't want it to be normalized. I don't want my boys around it. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm so strong against it that I probably do need to take your suggestion and tell them we're not going to have alcohol around my kids. Well, you know, at the very least, just like you're a fantastic example for your sons, you know, this is going to turn into you being a fantastic example for your parents too. They're going to see how healthy you are and, and how you're doing raising your, your boys. And they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to avoid the fact that the sobriety is a big part of that. They're going to have to recognize that uh, the woman you're, you're becoming is due in very large part to the, the getting alcohol out of your life. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact on them one way or the other. I'm 100% confident about that. Let, let's shift gears, Amber. I want to go back to the beginning, not, not the very beginning, but the beginning of your, your drinking career. You were quite an athlete in high school, and the sports teams that you were on, the drinking culture kind of started there for you, didn't, you, didn't it? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I started drinking in high school my freshman year. Um, I made the varsity softball team. And so the girls that I was hanging out with were mostly juniors and seniors. I was the only freshman. There was maybe one sophomore, the rest were juniors and seniors. So I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I'm going to meet all the cool kids and whatnot. So them being older, they brought me to a party, my first party. I was 15 and they knew it was my first party. They knew I had never had a drink before. So the two um captains they brought me into this bedroom with a bottle of peppermint schnapps and a shot glass <laughs> I remember it like perfectly like it was yesterday I mean it's crazy so they said okay here's your first drink um and they said now it's gonna make you feel like really calm and really good and it's gonna taste really bad but just swallow it as fast as you can so they poured it for me and I was like, oh, I'm kind of nervous. I don't know. But I didn't, there was no part of me that was not going to do it. 
I was going to do it. So I drank it. And, you know, a few seconds goes by and you feel that whoosh, you know, the warmth goes through your body and you're like, wow, I think I like this. Game over. I was instantly hooked. And I'll tell you why. My personality in high school, I was very, very shy and socially awkward. And I was the world's best people pleaser. I felt so awkward and uncomfortable around large group. I just needed something to ease the pain. And I knew as soon as I had that first drink, alcohol had just shredded my social anxiety and I was a new person. Yeah, that's amazing. I felt amazing. I was like, yeah, give me more. So and I was a drinker from that day forward. Did it? It, it, that is, it, it's a sad story, but one that I can certainly relate to, except for the being a stellar <laughs> athlete part. I mean, <laughs> played sports, but I, I wasn't making varsity as a freshman or anything. But talk about how did, did it impact your, your softball career in high school? You, you still went on to play some pretty good softball for those four years, right? Yeah, you know what? I like to think that it didn't, but that would be a lie. I was really, really good. I made, when I was a senior, I won an award for the, the Bay Area's, one of the best um, outfielders in the Bay Area. So the whole region. And you know, I was drinking every single weekend in high school. So I didn't have access to alcohol at home. My parents didn't drink back then. So I wasn't like sneaking alcohol every day or anything, but every single weekend I was going to parties. And I know now that alcohol stays in your system for many, many days. So I'm sure I was dehydrated and exhausted and cranky or whatnot. Um, and alcohol is not good for athletes. We all know that. So I didn't think it was impacting me, but I know that it was. I know that it was. I, and there were times, actually, now that I think about it, I used to go to practice occasionally drunk or high mm. I don't even know where I got it from but yeah. I remember one time I was like oh this is really fun I'm super drunk at practice um and my coaches they're a married couple they're big big drinkers so they didn't care I think they thought it was funny wow that's really sad to hear that is I a know. real problem right there um but you know there was another time I can remember I would play travel ball softball and my dad and I would head out to the game, the eight o'clock game. We'd have to leave two hours before the game started just to get there and warm up. And I remember I went to prom the night before and you know, prom night, that's a big, big night. We were up partying until probably two o'clock in the morning. I don't even remember when I got home, but I was super hungover the next day. And I still had my hair in an updo and I showed up to the game. I could barely see straight. Mm. And I don't, I, I probably struck out too many times that day, but I wonder why nobody said anything to me. I must've looked yeah. so terrible. You know what somebody who's hungover looks like? Why didn't anybody say anything to me? My parents, I what? asked myself that question. Why did they never say anything to me when I was in high school about my behavior? 
that's another confounding part of the stigma. It's it's such a hushed wish whispers, um, don't talk about it and hope it goes away kind of a thing. It's ridiculous. Um, so so even with the uh, you know lack of being their very best, you could have been better. You still got a full ride scholarship to Baylor. I did. Uh, Talk about what happened when you went off to college and there was no, no parental supervision at all. <laughs> well, like I said, in high school, I didn't have access to alcohol, but in college, I certainly did. My, I moved to Texas. My roommate was from Austin and she somehow, I think she had a fake ID. She bought alcohol for us. <clears throat> we had tons, we had a full bar in our dorm room. And um, she was a golfer and I was a softball player and we just drank ourselves silly. I mean, we went to class, we passed the classes, we went to practice, um, but when we were not in class or at practice, we were drinking heavy. I'm talking, it went from once or twice a week to seven days a week, just like that. There was no reason not to. How did it impact your performance on the field at, at, at this level, at the division one college level? I mean, the top of the food chain. Well, this is where the story gets a little sour. I, with all the heavy drinking, I just, I was not performing well. I gained a bunch of weight. I think I gained 30 pounds my freshman year. Um, oh, I was performing terribly and the coach, um, See, the coach that um, recruited me for the team actually retired before it got there. So it was a different coach. This person didn't know me at all. He did not like me. He was like, who are you? You got a full ride? Why did you, why did you get it? Why would anybody pick you for this team? I couldn't hit the ball. I couldn't run because I was gaining so much weight. And the way that he spoke to me was so degrading that my confidence was just rock bottom. Everything was falling apart. I just lost it. And then at the end of the season, he cut me off the team. I rode the bench the whole year. I think I played, I played a few games, but just a couple innings here and there. It was, uh, it was an absolute disaster. And I worked my whole life to get there. And then I threw it away. Did, I love that you take ownership of that now. I think that's really important. But at the time, did the way the coach treated you, did that just lead, was it like cyclical? Did that just lead to more drinking? Because yeah, like you couldn't see that the drinking was the problem. You thought this asshole coach was the problem. Was it one of those kind of deals? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was like, who is this guy to treat me this way? I don't know why he doesn't know how good I am. Well, he didn't know how good I, I was or could be. He just knew me for who I was then. Who I was then was absolute terrible. Um, but I, <laughs> I didn't realize what I'm telling you now until earlier this year or last year. It took, really? me, it took me 15 or 20 years to figure that out and take ownership for that. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I just never thought about it. I just always assumed it was his fault. I don't know why he cut me. That's the story I told everyone. That's what I believed until I stopped and took a good look at my life. And I thought, oh, 
I was responsible for being kicked off the team. Well, I can attest to the fact that 30 pounds would make you less athletic because I gained 40 <laughs> pounds my freshman year. All on <laughs> I was passing your 30 pound mark. Yeah. I, wow. I, was, I wasn't that, getting much uh, exercise in at that point. That makes got, me feel a little better. <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to this and finding it fascinating that like there isn't more like that coach should have known, like something is up, something is wrong. These are kids that are coming from having a parent that they're living under their household or two parents. And then they have all this freedom. So obviously you were recruited because of your, you know, your abilities. So why wasn't he like questioning, like what's going on? I don't know. Well, like it just, it's not like they're there to be babysitters, but I, I don't know. Like well, Matt and I have talks about coaching and like, what, what's the matter with, like, learning about the person? We went to Indiana University, which is a big basketball school. I mean, big basketball school. They, they went to the Final Four while we were there. And we worked in a bar, and we got to know some of the players. They were some of the drunkest assholes you'd ever meet. Yeah. So, and that, and that coach was a tyrant um, yeah. who had an iron fist on everything going on in that program. So, mm -hmm. I'm totally agreeing with you that there's, there's got to be a shift in culture. There's got to be a, a change in the way we do this because this, oh, you're a college kid now, you know, good luck. We hope you survive attitude. It's not helping anybody. It's not helping the athletes. It's not helping the students. It's, it's just a disaster. Yeah. And that's what he was like. He ruled with an iron fist. He decided instantly he didn't like me and I had no chance. It just got worse and worse. So at the end of your freshman year, at some point in your freshman year, you tore your rotator cuff and had to have surgery, correct? Did, did yeah, you... <clears throat> that was a few months later. I got did cut you... from the team and then I ended up staying at Baylor because now I had all these friends there and a life there and I liked it. So I ended up staying there anyway, but my friend was driving home from church one day and we got in a car accident and I, I tore my rotator cuff. So then I thought, wow, my softball career really is over. I'm never playing again. Was that, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I want to get your reaction. Was that almost a relief because, you know, you were this star and then you got cut and now you've got an excuse, right? Oh, my shoulder. <laughs> so I better just keep drinking because softball's over. Did that go through your mind at all? Oh, well, if I remember correctly, I think I used that as the reason why I left the team. It was very convenient how it all happened at the same time. So when people would ask me, what happened? Why did you leave Baylor? Well, injury. I had a shoulder injury and I just can't play anymore. Mm. Lies. Yeah. And just it's just recently that you're able to admit the truth to yourself or out loud, huh? Yeah, you know, the people that were closest to me would get the real story, but most of the people wouldn't. They would just get the shoulder injury story. So you went back home to California, uh, finished college there, and then you met your husband. The drinking continued, right? There was no wake-up call during any of this. Right. No, none at all. None then, at all. And then you met the man that would eventually become your husband, um, and talk about the, the drinking in the relationship. How, how did the, was, was drink, heavy drinking a big part of the early part of the relationship? Yeah, so I met him online, actually. <clears throat> we messaged for a few weeks and then we met in person. We met at a bar, 
had several beers and we were totally infatuated with each other. So we hung out all the time and there was never a time when we were together when we weren't drinking. Um, like I said earlier, we're from a town where there's over 50 wineries. So most of our dates were to the different wineries. We went wine tasting all day, Saturday and Sunday. If we didn't do that, we were going to dinner and we were drinking martinis and wine. Um, or, you know, we were always, always drinking. That, that's such a typical story in relationships, certainly when we're meeting people in our 20s and, and other times too, but certainly for Sherry and I, you know, all of our early dates were alcohol related at the time. Sherry was a big drinker too, not to the extent that I was, but you know, if you take the, the person you're seeing out to a nice restaurant, the idea of not ordering alcohol with a meal, that wouldn't even have occurred to either of us like that. No, absolutely not. Why would you go on a date and not have some drinks, some cocktails? So uh, as a result, it, you know, they, they say alcohol is great for lowering inhibitions, but what we've come to realize now is those inhibitions are there for a reason. The, the fact that it takes some time to get comfortable with somebody, we shouldn't lubricate that away. That's, that's on purpose. Let's see if we're really a good fit or not. So thankfully for Sherry and I, you know, it, it has worked out. It has been hard. Um, it almost didn't work out, but I consider myself extremely blessed to be married to Sherry. But uh, that lowering of the inhibitions and meeting somebody basically under the influence meets you're not, means you're not really meeting that true person and getting to know that true person the hard way, which I would argue is the best way. Tell us, tell us how that evolved in your relationship. Were you, were you just diving in head first because you didn't know any better? Well, all right. Well, this is how it happened, really. We were actually a little bit older than you think. It wasn't right after college. Almost 10 years went by, and then I met him. So this was about six or seven years ago. Um, I had just started teaching, and then I met him. Um, and I'm sorry, what was your question? Well, just talk about how alcohol influenced those early days. Um, we talked about how alcohol was ever present on those early dates, but what did oh. that do to prevent you from really knowing the true each other? Right. So it just, like you said, you just can't get to know anybody when you're drinking all the time. It's always fun and partying, but then you don't remember anything that you talked about and it's not the real you. So I wish I knew then what I know now, which is that we needed to spend some time getting to know each other without alcohol involved. Um, looking back, had I, had I been sober, I never would have married him in the first place. There were just way too many red flags. And I don't know if he would have chosen me either. We just didn't have a chance because um, actually it escalated pretty quickly. We dated for about a year and a half and then we were both 35. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, we're both getting older. Why don't we have kids? And I thought, oh, this is great. I can't believe he just suggested that. You know, I didn't even have to come up with that. He did. So I said, yes. And we started trying to get pregnant. <clears throat> I got pregnant quickly. 
probably a month or two later. And we were just ecstatic. We were so happy. But then <laughs> when I got pregnant, that is the first time in my life I thought, wait a second, I'm going to have to quit drinking. I don't know if I want to do that. And so we went to the doctor's appointment and I asked him at the first appointment, I said, I said, well, you know, doc, I've heard that you can still have a little bit of alcohol when you're pregnant. And he said, oh, absolutely. He said, you can have a little bit, just don't have too much. And he said it just like that. Just don't have too much. I can still hear it in his voice. So my doctor let me know it was okay to drink when I was pregnant. Hmm. So what I did was I measured out exactly one wine glass and I would have one glass about three times a week. Am I proud of that? Hell no. Right. But it's, that's still I would not recommend that to anybody. But at the time I was such a raging alcoholic I did not want to give up my wine. And my doctor had told me that it was okay. And those words were like music to my ears. I'm like, okay, I can still have my wine. So I did. But well, um, I applaud you for, uh, you know, saying that you wouldn't recommend that to anyone else and having regrets around that. But that's still a lot of control to exert for someone that is, as you just described, a raging alcoholic, three glasses of wine a week. Um, yeah. Well, I was not going to give my kids um, fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah. And I, I really, really was very strict about it. Um, I still feel ter terrible about it. Something, it's probably the hardest thing for me to admit was the fact that I still drank when I was pregnant. My kids are amazing and perfectly healthy, but yeah. I should not have done that to them. And the only reason I did was because I was such an addict. I could not stop and I didn't think I had to. So I said, okay, let's do it. But when I limited my alcohol consumption to such a low amount, that's when I really got to know who my husband was. Yeah. And so here I am, I'm pregnant, I'm working full time. We're living together and planning for a baby. And now we're no longer going out every weekend drinking at the wineries. We're not going out to dinner, drinking the martinis, and we're getting to know each other. Because see, he's not an alcoholic like me. So he stopped drinking too. He probably drank as much as I did or less because he doesn't like to drink at home. But now I'm getting to know him and the red flags start to appear. I'm thinking, wait a second, I'm pregnant. Isn't he supposed to be like cooking for me, rubbing my feet, like cleaning the house and grocery shopping? Isn't he supposed to be spoiling me right now? I didn't get any of that from him. I didn't get any attention. I didn't get any spoiling. I felt so unloved. And personality-wise, you started to notice things, right? You just weren't a good fit, things that you didn't notice when the alcohol was present. Yeah, we had nothing to talk about. <laughs> I realized we have nothing to talk about. I can't think of anything to talk about. I had to pull stuff out of nowhere and just say, so the A's, um, they're having a great season and just 
I don't even know. He, we just did not click. We did not click. So when, when did you know that it was over or reaching an end that you weren't compatible? Uh, because you, you, you had your first son and you, you had a second child together as well. Yeah. So was it, was it during some of these periods of sobriety during pregnancy and nursing that, that you realized this isn't going to work out? Um, I realized shortly after my first son was born because the lack of affection and lack of attention towards me continued. And it also, he also did that to my kid too. Um, I just saw very selfish behavior from him. He, um, he just didn't show up in the way that I wanted him to as a dad and as a husband. I was really disappointed um, when my first baby was born that I didn't have a partner to experience this amazing time with. Um, I was so disappointed and I was just devastated because I knew when my baby, my first baby was born that it was not going to work. We were just at odds on everything, but we did have another kid together. So we had two kids within 17 months. I always wanted two kids. So this was planned. Okay. Um, wanted to have two, but we had them pretty back to back. And after the second one was born, I told him we're getting a divorce. Hmm. Wow. How did he take that news? <laughs> um, he did not like that news. <laughs> he did not like that because... I'm the type of person who gets things done, okay? I work, I take care of the house, I cook and I clean and I do the dishes. I take care of the kids, all of their needs from morning until night. He, all he was doing really, in my opinion, was going to work and going to the gym and then coming home to relax. He didn't help with the diapers or the meals or the lawn. There was just more and more to fight about and I thought, I just really don't feel like I have a partner. I feel like I'm a single mom. So then I decided to be a single mom. <laughs> I want to I want to talk a little bit about the maternal instincts because when you talked about your guilt for drinking those three glasses of wine when you were pregnant, I got to tell you, you know, I, I I think that the instincts that are different between men and women, if men could give birth, there would be a ton more fetal alcohol syndrome because I don't think men, myself included, have the willpower to only have three glasses of wine a week when we're full-blown alcoholics. Um, and, and I want to go further with that and talk about when you decided, even though you knew it was over and it wasn't going to work out, you wanted that second child and you went ahead and had the second child anyway. Did, did you feel, I mean, I, th I think again, that's that maternal instinct that um, it differs I don't think a guy would have done that. D did you ever feel guilty about that? I understand that you wanted the two kids, but how did it make you feel to know that you were getting pregnant for a second time with a man that you didn't love? Well, it makes me feel great, to be honest with you, because those two little boys are best friends. And that was the whole purpose. I wanted them to have a sibling. I never wanted one child. I wanted two. And I was going to have two. Um, I don't regret it at all. And 
Neither does he. That's that was great. a good question. That was a good question. You, you handled it well with the positivity I've come to know and expect from you. That's the truth. I don't know what else to say. I wanted to, and I didn't want to, I, I mean, I'm not dating anybody. I don't know who else I would have another child with. Who would this person, where would the second baby come from and when? I yeah. wanted them to be back to back and they're 17 months apart and they are best friends. Mission I accomplished. <laughs> I love your brutal honesty. You're, you're brutally honest when you talk about the things that you regret. You're brutally honest when you talk about your drinking, but you're also brutally honest when you talk about that and having the second child. I, I admire you for that, Amber. That's great. Um, Thank you. You know, Matt, just before you ask your next question, it took me a long time to learn that skill of being honest because I already said I was a people pleaser, but I was also a chameleon. I would blend in with everyone around me just so that they would like me. And now I'm at a place where I actually like me. And if others don't like me, then, eh, oh, well, we're not going to be friends then. But I like me for the first time in my whole life. Is, is that a product of sobriety? Yes, 100%. It, that's amazing that eight and a half months in, you feel that way. That's, and I think... Because, you know, this attempt at sobriety was not your first. You, you stumbled and you had relapses, just like, I mean, I had 10 years of relapses, so I totally understand that. But I wonder if the fact that you had to get sober in spite of your support network, instead of getting sober because of your support network, if that just made you need, feel the need to ramp it up to this place faster than, than maybe some others feel and, and, You've just made a ton of progress because feeling that level of confidence at this point in sobriety is, it's really impressive. It's really impressive. Yeah, I guess it is opposite from most people where I think most people have outsiders saying, you know, family members saying, you're drinking too much. You need to stop drinking. And then the drinkers thinking, no, I'm not. It's the exact opposite of that. Everyone around me is saying, you don't have a drinking problem. You don't need to stop drinking. Just have one or two. And um, that brings me to another point. My husband, um, when we were still together, I would have a case of wine in the garage. Uh, you know, I'd have a bottle open every night and I'd have some glasses, but I told him at some point, I would like to slow down on the drinking or stop drinking. I just don't feel good when I'm going running. I don't, I don't really like being kind of hung over every day. You know, this isn't good for me. And he was like, no, don't quit drinking. He, him and my mom are the two top people who try to get me to drink still. Um, and he had a very good reason for wanting me to keep drinking. He thought, it would get him laid. And it did. So when I would clear all the wine out of the house, he would say, hey, you ran out of wine. I'll go get you some. He'd come home with four bottles of wine. And yeah. he'd go, here you go. And I said, no, I, I got rid of all the wine. I don't want it anymore. And he's like, come on. You're so much more fun when you're drinking. It's so much more fun. Take the edge off. You deserve it. And so, I mean, even just last month, a couple months ago was Christmas. 
we spend the holidays together still. Him and my mom had a few bottles of wine open and that red wine sitting there, oh, it stirred up something nasty in me. I could not get the image of that red wine out of my head for weeks. It put me into a dark bunk. I was just stuck on that image. I'm thinking, oh, I can't do it anymore. I'm just gonna crack. And of course I didn't. It, it only lasted really for a couple of days, but um, he's still, still to this day because we're still married technically. We're just waiting for the papers to come back from the judge signed. So since we're still married, he still thinks that there's a little bit of hope left for him that maybe I'll come back if he's on his good behavior, you know, he's still flirty with me. And it, after all this time, we're friends now. We're really great co-parents together. And um, I, I know that he's still hanging on to that hope. There's not a chance in hell that we're getting back together. But, but he thinks maybe if, uh, if you crack and you have a few glasses of wine, you can become friends with benefits at the very least. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> terrible. Well, as a man, I can say, I, I understand the thought process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but I understand the thought process. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, Amber, the, the transition that you wanna make and try to help other people and support other people through their early sobriety and help them find the recovery and the sobriety that you found. Um, you, you want to incorporate your running practice into helping other people. Can you talk a little bit about what your, what your goals and what your thought process are? Yeah. So like we said earlier, I'm a second grade teacher, but the past couple of years, I've been thinking about maybe a career change, something that would bring me more satisfaction and more joy. And the one thing that I keep thinking about is running. Um, I love running. I run full marathons, half marathons. Right now I'm training for an ultra marathon. And <clears throat> you all know I'm so passionate about my sobriety. So I'm thinking I wanna put running with sobriety. So now, I wanna help people get sober and stay sober while running a marathon or 5K, 10K. And I wanna help them get to the finish line and get sober. Well, you definitely have the credibility to, to do something like this. You just the other day included me in a Facebook group, uh, something about a, a four by, what was it? A four by 48, four miles every four hours for 48 hours. Yes. You're a crazy woman. I know. I'm not going to deny it. Yeah, that's David Goggins. His, if you haven't heard of David Goggins, look him up. He is so inspiring. He's a Navy SEAL. He's a motivational person. He's amazing. You have to get his book, um, his audio book, Can't Hurt Me. Purchase it now. But anyways, that's his event. And it's the 4 by 4 by 48 So I'm going to do that later this month. And I think the hardest part will be keeping up with the schedule and actually running at midnight and 4 a.m. I don't yeah. think the actual miles will hurt me as bad as getting up out of bed at those hours for two days straight. Uh, I think you're nuts, but I am. Really <laughs> I am nuts. I am. Yeah. So 
um, one of the things that we want to do for our intoxicated podcast listeners and our sober and unashamed uh, readers, we're, we're going to do a virtual 5K since we're still in the throes of COVID and everyone's trying to get vaccinated, but uh, they're not there yet. We're going to have a virtual 5K where you will help with coaching, you will help with recipe ideas and nutrition and motivational videos and all kinds of inspirational stuff um, to get people it, trained and ready to go for, for whatever distance they want to run, right? It doesn't have to be a 5K. It can be something longer than that as well. Um, yeah, and, we don't want to hold people back. 10K, yeah. half marathon. And we're going to offer that, you know, there's no, there's no fee for it. That we, we won't be charging people. We just want the people that are our readers and our listeners um, to get a chance to get to know you and get out and do something like this. So in the in the coming weeks, we'll we'll start announcing um, when the when the event is going to be and what it'll be on on event day. You know, we'll encourage everybody wherever they are in the world who does this event to do their running on their own, and then um, we'll have some kind of a group celebration together um, to thank and reward everyone for doing it. Uh, so we we are so excited, Amber, to be having you as part of the Untoxicated Podcast and Sober and Unashamed Blog family. Um, and the reason I want to just mention the reason that I think this is important, not only because of your positivity and how much we love you, and we want to encourage you to follow your passion, but it's just becoming increasingly obvious to us that sobriety it's not a spiritual issue, first of all. For some people, the 12, the 12 steps are very helpful, and I think that's great. I think that um, fellowship of some kind is very important. That's why we offer our, our Shout Sobriety group that Amber is a part of. Um, so I think that fellowship is super important, but there's got to be something else. For me, it was a lot of reading, you know, for, but the, the exercise component is just really intriguing for me. We've got to find something to replace the bad habit. You can't just get rid of the bad habit and leave this void. You've got to replace it with something good. And so running or exercise or yoga, just some kind of physical activity is such a healthy way uh, to replace that, that bad activity. And so having you lead our listeners and our readers on a journey like this, I think is, is really, really great. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what, what kind of things that, that people that join us um, on this quest for, like we said, 5K, 10K, half marathon, what kind of uh, stuff you'll be providing and, and what kind of encouragement will be involved? Well, you know, we're talking about recipes and nutrition. We're talking about the actual training plan and how many days and miles they're going to run every week. Um, and I would also even um, be willing to lead some yoga sessions because actually whenever I come back from running, I do yoga. It's super important to stretch, especially when you're starting a new running program in your store. So, I mean, yoga is just a fancy word for stretching. So don't be scared. Uh, definitely incorporate some yoga into it. Um, you know, what I really want though is something like what you have, where you have a group that so if I had a group of people that signed up for this and wanted to meet with me on a Zoom meeting and we could check in twice a week and we could talk about, you know, this is what I'm doing with my running and these are some of the struggles that I'm having and just have a conversation about it. I 
and we can talk about running, we can talk about sobriety, we can talk about yoga, nutrition, we can talk about anything, but it's like you said, we, we need community and fellowship. So I really want to not just be involved with people <clears throat> on the Facebook page, but actually to get to know people and talk to them. I want them to talk to me. I want to get to know them more, you know, deeply. And I don't know, it's like I said earlier, I just really want to help people. So I want to know where people need help. What do they need help with? And I can, I, I honestly believe I could train anybody to finish a marathon, a full marathon. Well, that's a brave thing to say. Um, having run one and sworn that I would never, ever, ever, for any reason, do it again, even if somebody was chasing me. <laughs> if there's anybody that could do it, I know, I know that it's you, Amber. Well, um, anybody can do it. And that brings me back to David Goggins, who we were just talking about. He has this rule. It's called the 40% rule where when we think we're done, just maxed out, just nothing left in the tank, we've only accessed 40% of our potential. We still have 60% left to give. People just quit too easily or don't challenge themselves enough. It's something they have to learn. It's something that I'm learning. That's why I signed up for his four by four by 48. That's why I've signed up for a 50 mile race Later, it's the 54 mile race in LA later on this year. Do I know I can do it? I don't know. I've never done it before. I mean, there's a chance that something could happen, but it would take a lot to stop me from crossing that finish line. I mean, I don't care if I'm crawling, if I'm crying, if I'm bleeding, if I have blisters, I'm gonna keep going because I do believe in the 40% rule. And I know I have this untapped potential inside me. I wanna see how far I can go. If I can finish a 54 mile race, then I'm gonna see if I can finish a hundred mile race. There's people across the world that do it all the time. Why not me? Why not you? Uh, no, um, <laughs> I'm cheering for you. But I, I think that, you know, that commitment, that dedication that you have, serves you very well in sobriety as well. Um, it's so obvious how dedicated you are. Um, and, and we wanna see you, you know, we wanna start out with offering these programs through our Intoxicated podcast and our Sober and Unashamed website and blog. Um, and we wanna encourage you, but we, we, I know that anyone who decides to um, work with you directly and, and have the benefit of your coaching, both uh, running coaching and also sobriety coaching, uh, because it's a package deal. They're gonna, it's gonna be their gain for sure. Um, you're, you've got a good thing going here, and we're just, we're glad to be a part of this. And you know, well, you know I feel like, I feel like this is turning a little salesy, and that's the last thing I want to do for the podcast. So I just want to reiterate that the, the thing that we're gonna offer this 5K in the spring of 21, 5K or 10K or whatever, it is. It's just to build community. There's no fee involved. Uh, you don't need to crack your wallet. We just want you to come along with us and um, see if if a running practice can enhance your sobriety practice. Because yeah, and you know what, <laughs> recovering addicts are great runners. 
I've been doing research into it and there's um, tons and tons of recovering alcoholics and drug addicts who are out there running marathons and ultra marathons. It's because they're good at it. We are already good at it. I mean, the skills that we have from being alcoholics all our lives, you know, we, we don't quit. We have that tunnel vision towards what we want, right? We have stamina to keep going because if you think about it, how many times did you wake up hungover and still go to work, still do a 12 hour day? You know, we can handle the pain and I'm not saying running is painful, but it can be towards the end of a race and the stamina and the pain tolerance that addicts have built in will get you to the finish line. And while you're running, you're going to learn all about yourself. You just have hours and hours to think. And that's when you get that clarity is when you're out on the trail and nobody's with you. You're just alone with your thoughts. It all starts coming to you. You've heard of the runner's high. It's a real thing. Sure. You feel amazing. You get all of these good ideas flooding in. You don't want to stop. It's gonna, it's gonna make you feel amazing. And recovering addicts, they're just built for running. I'm telling you, even if you hate running, if you've never done it before, you're you're wired for it. You're gonna be a great runner and you'll love it too. I'm not sure if, if running is what you should really do because I think you should pick something you have a little passion for, Amber. <laughs> I know, I just, I just have to go running right now. I already ran this morning, but just talking about it, I could run all day. If I had nothing else to do, I would just go running. I would but, run across the nation like Forrest Gump. <laughs> you're right though, that, that runner's high, that, that ties into what we talk a lot about with uh, the brain chemistry of addiction those neurotransmitters that are depleted, the, you know, one of the best ways to get those endorphins, which is one of those pleasure neurotransmitters going again, to get out there and run and, and force your brain to produce that and, and get that good, happy feeling. No question about it. Yeah. Amber, I, I've got a really good, happy feeling uh, just from having a chance to talk to you. Wait, how about you, Sherry? Some of that positivity rub off? Absolutely. Feeling good? You want to go running? Uh, no, I'm not a runner, but I probably will go to yoga. All right. Yes. We'll do yoga right after this recording. Amber, thanks so much for being with us. Um, our listeners will get to hear more about you as we uh, get to the point of promoting more about the virtual 5K and the running practice. Um, it's not just for recovering alcoholics either. If you've got pain and trauma from having lived with an alcoholic and, and been the loved one of an alcoholic, um, boy, you could use some positive neurotransmitter flow as well. So um, we want to invite, no matter where you are in the recovery cycle, there's a huge benefit from this and, and being a part of this running community will be great. Amber, before we go, tell us your uh, Facebook group for, um, it's is it Recovery Road? Recovery Road Runners. Recovery Road Runners. And, and that's, on, you know, not necessarily associated with the Intoxicated Podcast or Sober and Unashamed. It's your own forum where you're uh, communicating with, with people who are runners in recovery and sharing inspiring stories and recipes and, and ideas and suggestions. And so we want to invite all of our listeners to check you out at Recovery Road Runners on Facebook. Yeah, 
You can check out my website too. I just built it last weekend. It's not done yet. So if you go to recoveryroadrunners.com, you will see my page. It's not finished yet, but I'm at the point where I'm getting ready to launch this business and start collecting clients. I want to work one-on-one -on -one with people and make an impact in their lives. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, I know it's going to work out and uh, we're just glad to be a little part of it and at least be on the sidelines cheering you on. Thanks so much for being with us today, Amber. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Cherry. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.